0: Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've given us life and breath in all things. And Lord, we hope that tonight, as we open up your word, that you would speak to us, that you would speak clearly to us, that we would have eyes to see what you have to say to us. And even more than that, God, that our our hearts would be softened um, by your spirit and we would respond. We would respond well. Um, There are some challenging words for us, I think, in the book of James. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use your word to do its work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, what do you think faith is? What is faith? What do you think faith is, Cy? The future? Faith is the future. No, faith. The faith. It's okay. I'll forgive you. Is this future? Are you sticking with that, or... Beliefs? Okay. I'll take it. I like it. Faith. What is faith? Trust? Trust? Okay. I like it. What is faith? It's interesting how these words that we throw around all the time are so difficult to define, aren't they? It's it's interesting. Yeah? Believing in something without knowing all the facts? Okay. All right. Trust. Okay. Okay. Okay, yeah, yeah, trust, that's good. I love um, when when thinking of things that are hard to understand, I love imagery, I love pictures, I love um, metaphors and things like that. I think they're really helpful. And so imagine yourself hanging from the edge of a cliff and nobody you can see can pick you up. And like you could die any second because, you know, you weigh a lot, so it's hard to hold yourself up. But imagine yourself hanging on a cliff and yet being confident that somebody will save you, even though you don't know when it's going to happen, and you don't know how it's going to happen. That would be having faith. Or when you're, you're, you're struggling with something, um, and as you're struggling with something, there's always... a like a person that you go to, and you kind of cling to that person to comfort you, to give you peace, but then also to, like, help you deal with the situation, right? Sometimes that person that we cling to when we're in a difficult situation might be telling us, like, to stop doing something or might have, like, a hard word for us. And, and in that way, we would cling to that person, and we would have faith in that person as we cling to them, right? We already heard trust, right? To have trust and rely on somebody is to have faith. But then also faith is not just, I, I think we, we think of faith as something that's like more passive, right? There's not much that I have to do. It's all kind of up here or here. But I also like to think of faith as focus, right? And so if, if we were to have faith in God, that means that we would have undivided focus and all of our attention would be on him and on, on the King of Kings and on the Lord of Lords. And so if we were to say we had faith in Jesus, we would say, well, oh, I'm clinging to Jesus. I'm trusting in Jesus. I'm focused on Jesus. I'm confident in Jesus. There's all of these different ways that we can kind of throw other words in there and describe the multifaceted faith that we have. Faith is kind of like a diamond, and we can turn it over and over and over and see the different aspects of it. And yet faith, even though it's complicated, right, because we as um, Christians are are called to have faith, and, and to be honest, something quite incredibly huge something beyond our understanding a god who created the universe who spoke it into existence and so we're called to have faith and confidence and belief in him and kind of like what olivia said like we can't fully describe him in all that he is because he is so complex and so great and so set apart and different from us and so even though faith is this complex thing because of who we have faith in it's as simple as belief. And so why, I'm going to shut this door, hold on. So always we were talking and then hearing somebody else talking, like, oh, what is he saying? Um, why is it that when we think of faith, we typically only think of belief, trust? Why is it that when we think of faith, we don't, we don't think of action, we don't think of actually doing something? We just think of things that happen, again, up here and down here. One of the ways that I like to think of faith, especially as, as it relates to Jesus, is um, faith is almost like an obsession. And the reason why I say faith is like an obsession is because a faith in God, a faith in Jesus, consumes us. A biblical faith, faith as it's described in the Bible, not in the dictionary, not your friend, not your parents, although you know they might give great definitions for faith, Faith as the Bible describes it, right? This book, we believe, Christians believe, if you are a Christian, this book is our authority. What we believe is that God has spoken and that there's no error in this book. If God said it, it's correct. If we see or think something's wrong here, typically that's, that's our eyes, that need to be adjusted, not the word that needs to be adjusted. But if we believe that this is is the final authority and that this book is genuinely just powerful, then when it comes to faith and the things of faith, we need to have our attention toward the book to see what the Bible has to say about it. Because the Bible says and frames faith in this way that is very different than the way that we frame faith today. You and I, we typically think of faith as this mental exercise. right? I believe in something. Right, I, I, I think that something is true. Right, that If we would say, I have faith in Jesus, it's like, oh, yeah, well, I believe that he existed. I think that he's true. I think that what Jesus did is like fact. It's not fiction. It's, it's, it's truth. And yet the way James is going to describe faith for us tonight, it's going to be a completely different picture than just it happened or Jesus is real. You see, because we try to separate faith from our actions, We try to separate faith from obedience to Christ, and and we see this all the time because we've convinced ourselves that we can be Christians and yet not follow Jesus in the small areas of life, right? We've convinced ourselves that we can be Christians and we can have faith in God, and yet that faith in God does not transform the way that we are when we're in public or when we're with our friends or when we're um, out and about in the community or when we're at school or when we're here. And we've taken our faith in Jesus and we've kind of like put it in this slice of the pie. Rather than seeing the whole picture of what God has called us to, we've, we've taken faith and we've put it in this section of our life and that's, that's my life of faith, but then it doesn't touch the rest of this stuff over here when I'm at school, when I'm at home, when I'm in a fight with my sibling because they're a jerk and they stepped on my controller or whatever, right? Right? Or they, my brother, he used to when we were kids. He used to take the remote from me, and he was a lot bigger than me. So he'd just sit on me and change the channel to whatever he wanted to, and there was nothing I could do about it. You know, but in those moments, we separate our faith from our obedience to the gospel, from our obedience to following Jesus. And a real faith in Jesus, a genuine faith in Jesus, an authentic faith in Jesus, a biblical faith in Jesus, always, always produces a life of obedience. To Jesus. A real faith in Jesus always produces a life of obedience to Jesus. We obey him. We love his commands. The Bible actually says that for the Christian, the commands of Jesus aren't a burden anymore. They're actually light because we want to follow him, right? We all know what it's like to like be told to take out the trash or do the dishes and not want to do it and be like, bah, you know, and, I, and get kind of irritated and upset. And we still do it, but we're like grumpy in the process, For the Christ follower, the commands of Jesus, when we're called to do something in Christ, it's not a burden. We don't like, bah because Jesus changes our hearts by faith, and we respond in action of wanting and desiring to do the things that he's called us to because of our faith and confidence in him. The Christian has so much confidence in God that when God calls us to something, we run toward whatever it is that he's called us to rather than away from it. And the gospel, and the beauty of the gospel is that even in the moments when we want to run away, because you and I both know, if if you're in here and you're following Jesus, there have been moments of your life where God has called you to something and you've ran in the opposite direction. And yet the Lord has been gracious and good to just gently turn you back onto the road that you need to go on. And rather than holding your disobedience against you, he's forgiven you freely and set you on the right path and pointed you back to Christ. Because that's the forgiveness and the gracious, loving power of our God. He doesn't, just, he doesn't just call us to obedience and then leave us when we want to run away. No, no, no. When we run away, want to run away, he chases us down and sets us on the right path so that we can follow Christ truly. In James uh, chapter 2, verse 14, we see that faith in Jesus is no good without works. You're going to hear me say that word a lot tonight, works. What I mean by works is this, simple obedience to what Jesus calls us to. Simple obedience to what Jesus calls us to. So when you hear works, when you hear me say that, think in your mind, simple obedience that Jesus calls us to. All right? So I'm going to read verse 14. We don't have any slides tonight, so if you've if you got a Bible, follow along with me here. If your friend has a Bible, you can look with them. If you don't have a Bible, just shut your eyes and and, and listen to what I'm saying because you'll probably be able to track with me, all right? Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. I remember when I was in high school and, uh, you know, when I got into high school, there was a lot of people who, like, did sports and stuff like that when they were in high school, but, or when they were in middle school. But when I was in high school, like, lots of people did sports because when high school came, there was a lot more sports available for people to do in the community that I grew up in back in North Carolina. And there was always, like, these few guys, um, and they would lift weights all the time or they would say that they lifted weights all the time, right? And there's this really skinny kid. He was, like, super small. And I remember he would come up, and he would be like, man, I can bench, like, 250 pounds. And this guy was, like, justice's size. Like, I'm not, right? Like, he's justice's size. And he's like, dude, I can bench 250 pounds. I can put it up, like, two or three times. My max is, like, 275. And this guy would just talk, 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 talk. And I'm like, this guy's, like, 90 pounds with, like, drenched in water. There's no way this guy can lift 250 pounds. But over and over and over and over and over he went. And in high school, right, like at, the, at Eureka High School it's this way, and at my high school it was this way, there's a weight room. Um, always in the high school. And so this guy would, like, run his mouth and run his mouth and run his mouth, but then any time they got into the weight room, like, he would find an excuse not to try to lift 250 pounds. He would just try to, like, weasel his way out of it. Like, this guy's not going to try to lift 150 pounds. I think we all know somebody who's all talk and no show, right? We all can think of somebody like that. Maybe, maybe like, we've been there. I know when I was a kid, I was really, really small, and I was super self-conscious about it, and I used to tell people I could lift more weight than I actually could because I, I, I didn't want somebody to think I was weak, right? And so, uh, but we all know somebody like that, or we've experienced a moment where we've been like, we've just been all talk and no show. And nobody, at least to my knowledge, nobody loves to listen to a person who is all talk and no action, right? My dad, when I was a kid, over and over and over again, I remember, for those of you who are familiar with my story, I used to get in trouble a lot. For those of you who aren't, if you, if you want to know what I, what I used to do, you can talk to me. I'd love to tell you how Jesus changed my life. But um, I used to get in loads and loads of trouble. I lied to my parents all the time. I stole from people. I was just, I was a really, really big jerk. And over and over and over again, I would tell my dad, I want to change, I want to change, I want to change. And he would give me the benefit of the doubt. He'd be like, all right, all right. And I would kind of do good for a little bit, but then after some time goes on, I'd start going back to my old ways, back to the things I used to do, and I would kind of fall off again and get in trouble. And then, dad, dad, I'm going to change, I'm going to change, I promise, I promise. This happened so much that by the time I was, in, I was 18 years old, I was in drug and alcohol treatment. And uh, I was recovering from addiction and some of the things that I was putting in my body. And I called my dad, and this was the day after I got saved. I, I got converted. I became a Christian. God had given me the Holy Spirit. I was a different man. Um, I, my eyes were open to the truth of the Bible. And I saw that my life's purpose now was meant to follow Jesus and, the, and to progress and move the kingdom of God outward. All of these things were happening to me. They were very new, very fresh. I was just figuring out the things of faith. I would not have described anything that was happening to me in the way I just described it because I had no idea really what was going on. I was just learning, you know what I mean? Um, and so I'm learning about the things of faith, and I call my dad. And the first two words out of my mouth when I, my dad got on the phone, and he said, hey, what's up? And I said, I'm saved. My dad's like, what? I was like, I'm saved. And I started to explain to my dad that I became a Christian and that things were going to be different now my dad says, we'll see. Because over and over again, I told this man that I was going to change. And finally, when when God changed me, because I didn't have the power to do it on my own, God did something. He supernaturally changed my heart, gave me his spirit. I realized that Christ died and was resurrected for my sins, that I was offered free forgiveness because of the blood of Jesus. And my dad says, we'll see. (laughs) He says, we'll see. And so for the next few years, I began building this relationship with my dad where where he began to see the evidence of my faith. Now, how do you think my dad saw the evidence of my faith? I did stuff. (laughs) It's that simple. I did stuff. And the things that I did pointed to the faith that I had in Jesus. And my dad, the interesting thing about my dad, my dad, ever since I became a Christian, he's lived hundreds of miles away. When I got saved, my dad lived in um, L.A., and then he moved to Chicago for about two years, then he moved out to New Jersey for about a year, and then now he's in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I'm from, and uh, he's heard and seen both through me and my actions, but every time my dad has visited, this is really, really cool, my dad has heard and seen evidence of the saving work that God has done in me through the people in my life. It's been always fascinating to me anytime my parents come to visit me that when they're around people that know me, especially at church on Sunday mornings, um, they have heard nothing but what God has done in me and through me, and that points them to Jesus. Why? Because of actions. It's actions. And it has nothing to do with me. It's Christ at work, changing lives and doing His thing through actions. But nobody likes somebody who's all talk and no action. And here's the thing, and I I might step on some toes in saying this. We live in a community where many of us are all talk and no action when it comes to our relationship with Christ. Where our faith is hidden behind closed doors and we refuse to be obedient what God's called us to in public. Now this is unheard of in the New Testament. This would be a, a, a just absolutely unheard of. Like this is, this is crazy to the people in the Bible. Bo- the people who saw the resurrected Jesus couldn't shut up about Jesus. And we're like just silent about it. We've figured out a way to describe following Jesus without imitating Jesus without serving like Jesus, without walking like Jesus, without talking like Jesus, without putting on what Christ has called us to put on and taking off what Christ has called us to take off. And, and, and what it says here in James 2 is that that kind of faith is not faith at all. That kind of faith is lifeless. It's lifeless. It's a dead faith. Our actions reveal the life of our faith. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you start talking about actions and you start talking about faith, something very, very dangerous can happen. You can start thinking that your actions are the reason for your faith. Now, here's what I mean by this. What I mean is that if I try harder and do more good things for Jesus, then Jesus will love me more. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if Christ has genuinely, supernaturally changed the position of your heart from a rebellious sinner to a loved son and daughter, if God has changed your heart from an enemy to a son, if God has changed your heart from somebody living in sin to somebody walking in righteousness, if God has changed your heart from somebody who is against God to somebody who is with God, if God has genuinely changed your heart to be a Christ follower, it's going to naturally or supernaturally produce a life of works. Simple obedience to the commands of Jesus. It's going to produce. And so if you think cause and effect, we can mix that up, right? We can think that the cause is our effort and then the effect of that is a faith in Jesus. Right? You guys tracking with me? The cause is our effort, the effect, faith in Jesus. That's not what James is saying here. James is saying the cause, our faith in Jesus, and that produces, in effect, life of obedience to the gospel. The changed heart is the obedient I'm also not saying, which we can go to this extreme if we talk about these things, that your life is going to be perfect. Your life's not going to be perfect. My life's not perfect. There are days when I get up out of bed and I run away from God. And it's the grace of Jesus that calls me back to God and gives me the heart to take steps of obedience again. But faith in Jesus is not any good without works. Our actions reveal the life of of our faith, and let's, like, what good is a lifeless faith? James is giving us an example of of basically two people who, or two people, one person came and was in need, they didn't have any food, they were hungry, they were thirsty, they needed clothes, and this person says, peace be with you, be well, be well fed, like, have a good, this is like the perfect, like, culturally, uh, this is very similar to somebody saying, man, man, I'm really, really struggling with this, or I need some place to stay, and then the Christian saying, oh, I'll pray for you. Like, I'll pray for you. I'm not, I'm not going to do anything about it, but I'll pray for you. Right? If a brother or sister without, is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, like, I'll pray for you. I wish you really good things, but you do nothing. James is like, what good is that? And so he says, like, a genuine faith in Jesus is going to produce somebody who's going to want to engage in that situation and do something about it and see that person restored, see that person fed, see that person get a place to stay. a a, a person who loves Jesus is going to serve like Jesus. And in this situation, they would respond by meeting the needs of this person. But then he, he goes on in verse 18, and we see that faith in Jesus is seen through obedience, right? So faith without obedience is no good. But then you can't even see somebody's faith unless they obey what Jesus has called them to James says this in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So basically what they're saying is, I have faith, I'm good, and and you have your works. We can can separate those two things. Those two things are not the same. I have faith, I'm good, and you can can have your works. That's okay. You can do good things. But I don't need to do those good things because I have faith. I'm I'm all right. That's what this person is saying. And then James says, show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works." James is tearing down this kind of like person's argument of like, oh, well, I have faith, and, and you have works, and, and, and you do your works, but I'm good over here. I have faith. I believe. I'm, I'm, I'm good. And James says, okay, show me. Show me your belief. The reason why he says that is because you, you can't. You can't reveal your love for Christ if you don't do anything, right? If you just sit around and not do anything. So James is saying, no, like, reveal your love for the Lord by loving people. Reveal your love for the Lord because like, Jesus does not call us to an invisible faith. He calls us to a faith that's visible, a faith that's evident, a faith that's seen. And it's seen in our actions. Our actions are beneficial to the people around us because they point to the one we believe in. But then he says something really, really scary He says in verse 19, you believe that God is one. And what he's saying is that God is, there's one God and he is unique from anything that we could imagine. James is actually um, declaring the beginning of a prayer that Jews would say every morning and every evening. It was called the Shema. It's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which says, um, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they would say this prayer every day to kind of center themselves on what they were supposed to do. But it would start with, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And they would say this over and over and over again. And so James says, you believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. He says, you believe God's one. Good. You, you, you know that God is one. But even the demons know that God is one. And they're terrified of him. Because the demons are terrified of God because they know they're going to receive a judgment from him for their rebellion. Now, here's what James is doing. This is very, very interesting. I want you, each of you, to think about how much you know about God. Just all the the facts, all the information, all the theology, all all the stuff that the Bible communicates about God. Think about what you know about him. Demons know far more about God than you ever will in this life. Just let that sit for a minute. Demons know more information about God, more accurate information about God, true information about God than you and I will ever know in this life. And they shudder because of that. They're terrified because of what they know about God. What sets you apart from demons who know more about God than you ever will? Think about that for a minute. We think that that the mature Christian, right? I'm sure you guys will agree. We think that the mature Christian knows a lot of Bible stuff. They have a lot of Bible knowledge. They, they, They understand a lot of what the Bible says. But what James is saying here is the demons know tons about God. And yet they're terrified of him because they know that they will receive a judgment from God because the demons are in rebellion against him. And so what is going to make somebody who claims to have faith, claims to know God and doesn't act, any different from a demon? Who knows a lot about God. The difference between a a demon and a righteous person is not what they know. It's what they do. And that's what James is saying. The most evil being that we can think of is a demon. And James is saying the only difference between a demon and a righteous person is what they do. Because you, we, we, both the demon and us, we can know about God. Demons know about God. They know who he is, they know what he is, they know what he's done, they know that he's the creator. They know all of these things about God. And we we need to learn about God, right? Like I'm not saying that knowledge is, is bad. Knowledge is not bad. Knowledge is good right knowledge actually helps us love more think about it the people that you love the most are the people you know the most about so the greater that you know someone the greater that you love them so the more that we we seek to know god and seek him the greater our love for him will be but what james is saying is if you have faith and no works you're no different than a demon because they know stuff they know lots And so it's our works, it's our effort, it's our our mission, how we push the kingdom of God forward, how we obey and follow Jesus in this life that sets us apart from evil. It's not what we know. It's what we do. And what we do comes from who we believe in. in. Verse 20 through 26, we see this picture where James kind of, continuing to talk with this person who says, you have faith and I have works, and he gives him two pictures. The first one is an Old Testament character named Abraham. You guys have probably heard of him. And the second is an Old Testament character named Rahab. Now, here's two things very interesting about these people. These two people were really messed up. Rahab was a prostitute. Okay, I don't think I have to explain what that is. If, if I do. Please come talk to me after the message, and I'll explain what that is, and and I I can share share that with you. But basically, Rahab, um, she lived in sexual impurity and sin. Okay, and Abraham gave his wife away to another man twice. Not the ideal picture of somebody who's good, right? Like, you think about that. I'm married. Right, My wife's name is Sarah. You guys have seen her before. Now, what would you think of me if I gave Sarah away to another man? We're still married, but I, I gave her away to another man. Almost like property. Right, You would not think very highly of me. Abraham did that twice. And we have Rahab. So we have, we have two pictures of people who do not have like the best track record when it comes to obedience and good works. And we see in both of these that God gives them faith. In both of their stories, God gives them faith, and they respond in faithful obedience. For Abraham, God appeared to Abraham, and he offered him a promise. And he basically called Abraham to follow him, and that if if Abraham followed him, God would bless him, and God would use Abraham's family line to save the world. And through Abraham's family line, Jesus came, and, and the rest of his history, right? Jesus has offered salvation for all kinds of people people from all nations can be saved through the blood of jesus and so through abraham's family tree the world can be saved so that promise was fulfilled in jesus but he made that promise to abraham abraham's not going to see the promise fulfilled but he believed god he believed that god was going to do it and it moved him to crazy actions of obedience one extreme to where he almost like sacrificed his son because God tested his faith and called Abraham to like, sacrifice his son, which was a picture of this promise. And it actually says in, I think it's Hebrews, I believe, I could be wrong, but that Abraham had so much confidence in God that he was willing to kill his son because he knew that God could raise the dead. He had so much faith in God, he knew God could raise the dead, and so he's like, alright God, I'll do this, because I know you can raise the dead, My, that promise will still happen. he had so much faith in God, it called him to this crazy action. And Rahab lived in a city called Jericho. And if you've read Joshua 6, you know that there was an army that marched around the city of Jericho seven times and after the, for, seven times for seven days. So they would march around the city seven times and then go away to their camp and then do it again and then go away to the camp. And then on the seventh day that they did it, they shouted a loud, loud cry, the army blew trumpets and the walls of Jericho fell. Miraculously. But before that, the army of Israel sent two spies into the city of Jericho to like, scout it and check it out. And these two spies, they, they got found out. The, the people in the city knew that they were there. And so the king of the city sent like, soldiers to go find these spies that were in the city. And Rahab, the prostitute, knew who the spies were. They, they, she knew that they were Jews. She knew that they represented the people of God. And so she grabbed him, she brought him into their house, and she hid him from these soldiers. These soldiers even came to her house, and she lied to them and sent them away in another direction so that she could like, send them this way and then let the spies go out the back door and get back safely. And she did this because she knew and believed that God was going to destroy the city. She had faith that God was going to destroy the city, the army of Israel was going to come in, and God was going to carry out his promise to the Jews to set them up and give them the kingdom of the promised land, which Jericho was the first city that they conquered in that military campaign to take the promised land in Joshua 6. And so Rahab has this incredible act of faith. She rebelled against the armies of Jericho for the sake of these two spies, and we see Abraham respond as he desires to sacrifice his son because he believed what God was going to do, that God was going to still carry out his promise, he could raise the dead, God was going to make it happen. Those are two very, very interesting and like weird and peculiar stories. But James is using these to argue that their faith changed their actions. It changed their life. Their life looked different. They, they were not the same people once they encountered the God of the universe. And so I, just, I want to ask you, and I want you to think about this. You say you have faith. If you say that you have faith, if you say that you believe in the gospel, if you say that you believe Jesus, what would you do if I came to you and said, show me? Prove it. And that's what James is calling us to. And the interesting thing about this letter is this letter sets up the rest, this this portion of this letter sets up the rest of the portion because James is actually going to show us how we show our faith. And how we walk in maturity in light of that faith. But before he did that, he had to show us that apart from works, our faith is useless. Our faith is dead. And he ends this section by saying this. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. That word for spirit is breath. It's like breath. The body without breath is dead, right? If, if, you, if I, you came over here and I was not breathing, I would be what? I'd be dead, like super dead, like deader than dead, right? If I'm not breathing, I'm dead. And so just like the body is dead without breath, our faith is dead without works. Simple obedience to the commands of Jesus. And so think about how your body cannot survive without breath. Your faith does not thrive. It doesn't live without works. Works are the life breath of your faith. They're the evidence of your faith. They're the way that your faith goes out. Just like our breath goes out of our body, faith produces and pushes out of our lives in works. Simple obedience to Jesus. Just like we push breath out to show that we're alive, we push works out to show that we are alive in Christ. We need both faith and works. We can't separate these things. We can't just say, I believe, and not do, but we also can't just do a bunch of good stuff apart from belief. Genuine faith doesn't exist without works. We cannot have a genuine faith of God if our lives are not any different than the people around us. But at the same time, our effort has no value apart from belief and faith in Jesus. You can't just work your way into Jesus' good favor. That's not how it works. We believe and we receive what he's promised us, and it's out of that receiving that we then are motivated to action. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. God, we thank you that you've given us um, this challenging passage. This is just a really tough passage to read. Um, I know for me it exposes a lot of sin in my own heart, areas that I'm, I'm not acting in, areas that I'm fearful to act in. And so I pray, God, that we would be comforted, that we would remember that um, Jesus helps us in our effort. God, that we do not work alone, but we seek to follow Jesus under the power of the Spirit. And so we thank you, God, that you've given us your Spirit to help us be obedient to what you've called us to. And so obedience is possible. We can because Christ has accomplished it all. And so, God, I pray that as we seek to be obedient to what you've called us to, we would cling to Christ, that we would have a faith that produces works, that we would have so much confidence and love for Christ that it would um, be seen so clearly to those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.